This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Monday, April 17th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. No one can understand what Emmanuel Macron was thinking on his visit to China. It is hard to overstate how, quote, badly he mangled both the symbolism and the messaging around his carefully planned China trip. That, according to the Financial Times, which goes on to say, not only did Macron have little to show from his efforts to convince Xi to limit his support for Russia. He created a diplomatic uproar with an interview on the flight home in which he called on Europe to develop its own stance independent of the U.S. to deal with tensions between Beijing and Taiwan. What was Macron thinking? What was I thinking in trying to pronounce Macron other than Macron? But really, what was he after? Was there ever as bad an own goal in international diplomacy as a guy not directly involved in an issue interloping into that issue, an issue not extremely vital to his own country's interests, yet setting affairs back in every single way? Well, it turns out affairs weren't set back in every way. There was one area where Macron's meeting with China bore fruit. Not fruit. Actually, bamboo, they're winning on the China front. Panda diplomacy is still practiced by China. And thanks to Macron belittling himself on the world stage, China extended the lease on the pandas it has on loan to the Paris Zoo. Set to return last year, Huan Huan and Yuan Zai will be staying in France until 2027. This is big news. National news international news, zoological news, and now it's time for sports. Here's ESPN's Stephen A. Smith with the Memphis Injury Update. With Stephen Adams out, with uh, Brandon Clark out, and then to lose John Morant too, that is just entirely, entirely too much to overcome. And add to the injured reserve list out of Memphis, Yaya. Yes, Yaya, the giant panda who lived in Memphis for 20 years, had been experiencing mites and weight loss. But among the zoo's panda population, Yaya has escaped the worst of it. Yaya's male companion was so underweight that panda watchers, including an organization called Panda Watch, had issued warnings. Lele, the female panda, and Yaya both look too skinny. No, don't body shame our pandas countered the Memphis Zoo. Groups posted video of the zoo's panda cam showing Lele experiencing diarrhea. The zoo had no official comment on that except maybe general disgust. Panda diarrhea is green, by the way, in case you were wondering. Some panda observers point to other ways in which the pandas were neglected by the zoo. To make things worse, it seems like they are actively punishing the bears for the efforts of the animal activists trying to save them. During Halloween, all the animals in the zoo got pumpkins as extra enrichment. Even the penguins who do nothing with the pumpkins got pumpkins, yet Yaya and Lily did not get any. 
That from one of many amateur panda watchers who would put together videos and try to draw attention to the plight of the pandas. And while there was no known correlation between pumpkin availability and panda morbidity, the zoo did feel it had to issue proclamations, like this one that aired on ABC 24 Memphis one year ago. The Memphis Zoo wants you to know its pandas are in good health and there is nothing to worry about. And here was ABC 24 Memphis's top story 10 months later. Well, the Memphis Zoo is mourning the loss of a beloved animal. The zoo's male giant panda, Lala, has died. Lala is no more. And now Yaya is going home. Beset by illness, weight loss, mites. It's hard to say before Yaya gets a full physical. The French pandas, on the other hand, are staying until 2027. And the Memphis Grizzlies are down one game to zero against the Lakers. Plus, Emmanuel Macron's popularity is somewhere below the Grizzlies' chances, but above Lele's. And it just goes to show my point that there is no story in the world that can't be told through pandas. On the show today, I spiel about the questions not asked to anyone but Amy Klobuchar about Clarence Thomas and the billionaire who gave lots of money to his mom for home repairs. But first, today throughout the world, it is Holocaust Memorial Day. This is remembered in Israel and is just about the only thing that could bring that fractured country together today, a shared history, the purpose of which was to form a Zionist nation so that this would never happen again. Well, with that in mind, we turn to Israeli expert Stephen Simon. Not just Israel, but all of the region. Simon is a longtime State Department hand. He worked in the Obama and Clinton administration, and he is now senior analyst at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Stagecraft and a fellow in studies at MIT. We talked to him about his new book, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. Stephen Simon up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Stephen Simon is somewhere between, I don't know, a Zelig and a Talleyrand figure when it comes to U.S. policy towards the Middle East. He has copious amounts of foreign policy experience. He served on the National Security Council as Senior Staff Director for Middle Eastern and Northern African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999. 15 years he was at the U.S. Department of State. Presidents from Reagan to Obama, actually Carter policy, is analyzed all in his new book, his large book, his somewhat definitive look at U.S. policy towards the Middle East, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. Stephen Simon, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. 
So Grand Delusion implies it wasn't a series of bad decisions or poor tactics. It was a flat-out misconception or a fundamentally flawed strategy. How would you describe what America has been doing or trying to do towards this region since you've been involved in U.S. policy? The short answer to that, Mike, is that uh, every administration, Republican or Democrat, really, has uh, brought to the region grandiose notions uh, that, um, you know, of a moral or strategic nature that have had very little to do with what was actually going on on the ground. And that has led to serial blunders and has been extremely costly uh, for the United States, but also the peoples of the Middle East, the populations of these, of these countries. So that's, that's the short story. Yeah, and the long story is detailed, but from what you just said, do you think it was ignorance, mostly ignorance, uh, not understanding what was going on the ground that led us awry? It was uh, being blinded, I would say, by these grand ideas. And these grand ideas blocked the ability of these administrations to absorb information that ran counter to their grand delusions. And one of the themes in the book, as is, is, is you will have seen, is I, I made um, really extensive use of declassified uh, CIA documents. Because, and, and I did that because the CIA is within government, obviously, and its analytical branch, which is huge, has an important job, and that job is to speak truth to power and to tell uh, the politicians and policymakers that are driving U.S. actions in the Middle East whether these actions and the policies behind them make sense. They're relevant uh, to realities on the ground. And uh, what I found looking through these, these documents was that the intelligence community more often than not got it right. Yeah. And, and they told these administrations one after another that what they were doing was irrelevant at best and counterproductive and, and, and seriously damaging at worst. Yet these voices from within were um, uh, more or less persistently ignored by the politicians and policymakers who were at the top of the, you know, of the command chain. But different administrations had different orientations and different policy goals uh, as regard the Middle East. The two North Stars, I would always say, is more or less support for Israel and uh, securing oil, securing the region as a safe place to power uh, the United States and fulfill the oil needs. But, or, or am I wrong? Or even though the Reagan administration certainly campaigned as the corrective to the excesses or inadequacies of the Carter administration. And then so too did Barack Obama uh, advocate that he would be somewhat of the polar opposite of the Bush administration. Are you saying that by and large things were relatively the same and it was the same mistake being made over and over again? 
Uh, I'd say it was the same mistake over and over again, Mike, because if you look at the rhetoric surrounding the policies of each of these administrations, it's always about uh, the United States acting in the capacity of a great power to bring civilization and goodness uh, to the Middle East, no matter how many people you had to kill to do it. And, you know, under Reagan, you know, he it, at the very beginning of his administration, just as it was getting off on its, you know, finding its footing in uh, 1982, he put U.S. troops into Lebanon and he justified the deployment of troops to Lebanon as um, something that would benefit, he actually used these words, benefit the whole world, would advance freedom and liberty throughout the world. Now, this is, if, if you know anything about Lebanon, you know anything about the Middle East and, and you have a sense of how big the world is, um, yeah. you know, you really have to sort of shake your head and think, well, where did he get that idea? Yeah, specifically with Lebanon, the threading of a needle given the factionalization of that country, maybe more so than any others, where literally in the Constitution, different sects are apportioned different roles. Yes, and, and exactly. And, and the, the U.S. Had, had pledged that it would remain neutral and just try and keep the peace. But in fact, it quickly took sides and became yeah. a, a target. Uh, in this uh, in this Lebanese civil war that the United States uh, was supposed to tamp down, but instead the United States threw gasoline, um, you know, on the fire, and and this killed a lot of Americans. You know, it killed 241 Marines, uh, uh, and it and it killed basically every senior U.S. intelligence officer from the Middle East because the U.S. embassy was bombed. So. If, if you speed past Reagan to the first Bush administration, it was sort of the same thing, right? Because there the pledge was a new world order. That's why we're doing this. And um, that was an astonishing claim. Now, it was made in the aftermath of the fall of the, of the Soviet Union. So it did seem like history was at some kind of a strange juncture. Um, but how this new world order was intended to apply to the Middle East was it was a bit staggering to contemplate. And then when the Clinton administration came in, they had a different what they called bumper sticker. Um, it wasn't new world order. It was enlargement. OK, which was another way of saying new world order, because it entailed the imposition of democracy <clears throat> on countries of the Middle East and the isolation and punishment um, of countries that didn't get the memo on democracy. And then you look at the, you know, second Bush administration, and it was the so-called freedom agenda, yeah. you know, that followed 9-11. And the name of the freedom agenda, well, Iraq was invaded and, and, and fairly terrible things happened. And in Obama, for the first half of his first term, it was democratization again because there were Arab spring uprisings in, in, you know, in the Middle East. Uh, the United States supported them. And the idea was that we would once again uh, confer democracy on a, on, a, on a benighted and immiserated region. And, and as a result, the United States waged a war along with NATO in Libya that took a, um, a country that was already in bad shape and completely wrecked it. 
and supported a large arm and train operation in Syria that prolonged the civil war and no doubt had the effect of killing a lot more Syrians than might, you know, otherwise have died. The fever, you know, really didn't seem to break. You know, this arc of intervention that began with Reagan really didn't seem to break until Obama's second term and, and, and Trump uh, buried it. So I have uh, a fundamental question about your analysis, which is, is your thesis that, and I understand that I've read the book, I hear what you're saying, that we had hubris, we plowed ahead, even though we had, uh, we as the United States, we had good advice to the contrary, and we would have been better served by humility, by trimming our sails, by maybe conducting our interests with more nudges than blunderbusses. But is your thesis that, had we done that, the Middle East today would be more advanced. The average person would have a less immiserated life. It would be less dangerous. Is that your thesis? Or maybe that all would have played out. It just wouldn't be the United States problem as much. Well, uh, look, I've got no idea. Right. But if you look at Iraq, you know, for example, uh, it's, um, I think, broadly agreed that um, the war in 1991 followed by nearly a decade of very serious sanctions, killed a lot of Iraqis. And, and the burden was disproportionately placed on Iraqi women and children. Yep. Okay. So the numbers uh, who died as a consequence of that first war and then the ensuing sanctions is thought to be in the hundreds of thousands. So um, you know, that was, uh, that was pretty awful in terms of the human toll. And then you had the second Gulf War, which triggered a civil war and a brutal civil war that in itself, you know, killed tens of thousands of Iraqis. Now, the people who were involved in the, in the Bush administration, as I noticed in a prominent magazine um, uh, the other day, referred to Iraq as a quote-unquote modest success. And, and, you know, was it, was a modest success worth the immodest pain? And, and not just, you know, on Iraqis. The United States lost over 4,000 troops, you know, in Iraq. These were people, you know, they were young people. They were with promising futures and all that. They're gone. And the, the United States paid trillions or will have paid trillions by the time, you know, all the debt of the war is paid off, um, you know, for having done this. Now, I will say that U.S. protection for Israel and Saudi Arabia was an important factor, not just in the survival of those two countries, but in their prosperity. So to the extent that Israel and Saudi Arabia were important objectives I think you'd have to say that that aspect of U.S. policy was successful, so successful that those two countries now feel confident enough to diss the United States. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I mean, to different degrees. I want to, as you note, that the United States certainly had an interest when it comes to Israel in preventing a second Holocaust. And uh, they did. And the fact that Israel was, and I'm going to say, a bona fide, though imperfect democracy. I know some people would talk about apartheid states and, you know, the 20% of their population that's Arab that is uh, less than the actual population and disenfranchisement. But I will say they're. They're a true democracy, and we have uh, an interest in promoting that. Let's take let's talk about the situation now, though, uh, in a couple of ways. One is they're going through a lot of Sturm und Drang, Suris, as uh, I'm sure they would say, with their courts. Is this? Um, and we saw something like twenty percent of the population come out and protest. Is this a an example of? a real inflection point where the entire country in your analysis could very much fundamentally change based on what's decided. But also, is it B, uh, an example where the United States should maybe for once practice the humility that you advise? Well, yeah, great question. Uh, Is Israel at an inflection point? Uh, You know, perhaps it is. I mean, the, 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 the changes that are underlying the current crisis began a long time ago. I mean, the, the chickens are only now coming home to roost. And, yes. uh, you know, you correctly noted that we're talking about a fifth of the population that opposes, um, you know, this war on the Supreme Court, this war on the, on the judicial system. You know, you you need to take into account the fact that the 20% are out there in the street, but there's nobody shooting at them. Yes. This is not, you know, Cairo or Aleppo, you know, during during the Arab Spring. So you have to wonder, well, if if the government was shooting at them, you know, whether a fifth of the, you know, a fifth of the electorate. Uh, you know, would be out there in the streets. I mean, who knows? But the, but the point is, it's a fifth, okay? It's not a third. It's not a quarter. It's not, it's not a plurality, let alone a majority. They say this is a, the, the protest of Medinat Tel Aviv, which, is, which translates as the state of Tel Aviv. And you know what they say, you know, Tel Aviv is a fantastic city and it's only 20 minutes from Israel. You know, it's a different scene there. You know, it's secular and it's, you know, globally oriented and it's high tech and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. It's the kind of city where anybody from New York uh, would certainly feel at home. They say it has the uh, most robust LGBTQ culture for thousands of miles. Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, that's not saying much in the region, but it's true. But you know, four-fifths of the country is not out there protesting this. Mm-hmm. The opposition to judicial reform and what people fear is a slide from democracy into something else, most of the country is, is kind of okay with it. You wrote an op-ed for the New York Times advocating putting Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on trial. And guess what? Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's trial might start soon. The thing is, you wrote that op-ed in 2009. If you looked at your calendar <laughs> lately, it's 2023. Is this a case of justice delayed for so long it's justice denied or at long last we're finally doing the right thing? Well, um, 
you know, setting aside the question of justice for a moment, there is simply the question of the American people learning what happened before 9-11 and on that day. Now, there may be a jury that decides the fate of the defendant in any particular case, but the point is American people, for something that was so profound, so deranging for the United States as the 9-11 attacks, the absence of any trials has been devastating because we do not know. So there's another trial coming up. The families of the victims of the 9-11 attacks, and plus a, a number of you know, prominent firms that were badly hurt or wiped out in the 9-11 attacks, are suing Saudi Arabia because, according to the 9-11 Commission report, uh, there were key conspirators within the United States who apparently made it possible for the hijackers to do their their appalling uh, work, and that these individuals were Saudi government employees. No one's, as far as I'm aware, no one is putting the onus on, you know, the Saudi king and all that. Nobody thinks, you know, they, the, the, the country's leaders had anything to do with it. But the point is, from a legal perspective, you know, there were employees of Saudi Arabia that were, that were really crucial to the success of this plot. Well, you know, we're never going to know without a trial. We're never going to know. Yeah. And when you consider the devastating impact on the United States of 9-11, okay, not just the thousands of people who were killed on that day, but the 20-year war it unleashed with all its expenses and human cost and its, and its impact on domestic U.S. politics, and particularly the growth of militia culture within the United States, and aggressive militarized policing, you know, in, in American cities, all that stuff. You got to know why it happened. And trials, well, they're the, they're the platform, they're the vehicle for bringing that knowledge um, to the public. So having, you know, military commissions or having no trials whatsoever and just locking people up, you don't know things about your country's history that are truly consequential. They're important to know. Stephen Simon is a senior research analyst with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He is the Robert E. Wilhelm Fellow in International Studies at MIT. He served in the Clinton and Obama administration. He's the author of The Age of Sacred Terror, and his new book is Grand Illusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. I watch the Sunday shows because they're pretty informative. 
And not only by design, but symbolically. What subjects the Sunday shows talk about steer national conversation, but that the Sunday shows converse about a subject solidifies that subject's importance. So I was sure the airboy leaking top secret messages would be a topic for a discussion. But what can you really press an official on about that? Who's in favor of that? Actually, the answer is Marjorie Taylor Greene, but she wasn't booked. We'd certainly get to Mifepristone. And of course, the hosts would ask their guests, possibly one of the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, what they thought about Justice Clarence Thomas taking expensive trips funded by billionaire Harlan Crow, who actually went on to buy Clarence Thomas's mother's house. She still lives there. So when Judiciary member Amy Klobuchar was asked about this on ABC's This Week This Week, here's what went down. How serious is this? Serious. When you have billionaires who are on boards with cases pending before the court, buying a justice's mom's home and renovating it, and then that justice doesn't report it, this isn't even an exception for personal friendships. Okay. But this week also had on Senate Judiciary Committee member Lindsey Graham. He wasn't asked about Clarence Thomas. Well, they got some comment from Klobuchar. Let's check in on all the other shows and how they covered Clarence Thomas and his mom's house. They didn't. NBC's Meet the Press had on two senators. Clarence Thomas did not come up. Face the Nation had on a governor and a senator. And Representative Mike Turner, who sits on the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, did not weigh in on the question of accountability for Clarence Thomas. CNN's State of the Union also left it alone. So what did the Sunday shows talk about? Well, none missed a chance to look ahead more than a year and a half towards the presidential election and focus on a candidate who is not officially a candidate yet. So you worked uh, and you know Governor DeSantis. Is he, is he taking too long to get in the race or to at least... Uh, that, that DeSantis is meddling in things that he shouldn't be meddling in, right? Like Social Security entitlement programs. Holly Jackson, I want to focus on Ron DeSantis because it, I think, does get us into all of the current... You're right. Hand-wringing inside yep. the GOP, whether it's on abortion. Whether it's that abortion. was Jake Tapper, Chuck Todd, and David Urban sandwiched in between them. I don't degrade and don't expect any differently from these shows for talking about DeSantis and the presidential race. But can we spend a second talking about a Supreme Court justice seemingly on the take? Why wasn't this deemed important? One answer might rest in the answer that Klobuchar gave. I didn't play all of it, but it's basically that the Supreme Court has no rules. So it's hard to ask the Senate to hold rule breakers accountable. But a good question is, shouldn't there be some rules? And another good question is, shouldn't citizens care that there are no rules? Because this citizen, after story number one by ProPublica, which was Clarence Thomas going on expensive trips, this citizen, this guy, I wasn't so up in arms. Eh, Maybe there was an empty seat on the plane, the yacht, it's going to sail with or without the justice on it. It's not great, but given that there are no rules, I bet every justice has accepted a gift of some appreciable value. And I also took into account the ephemeral nature of vacation. It doesn't maybe seem like outright bribery. Maybe, one could argue. But buying a justice's mother's house and making thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in upgrades to the house while she's still living in it, this is not different from just paying the Supreme Court justice. It's not even a misdirect or a fig leaf or like one of Michael Cohen's taxi medallion companies or the Enron-style limited partnership, Chuco and Raptor and the rest. It's not 
clever. You don't need to have clever ways to get around the rules, I guess, if you don't have rules. But it is a rich guy giving goods and services to the family of an extremely powerful government official. Maybe other less powerful government officials might have something to say about that, even an excuse or a deflection or a non-answer or a rejection of the premise. That might be instructive to the people who vote on those other less powerful government officials. One of the Meet the Press panelists was Stephen Hayes of The Dispatch. The Dispatch is funded in part by Harlan Crow. I guess if you discuss Harlan Crow, you'd have to disclose that fact, and then it's all awkward for Stephen Hayes. Although, I don't know, maybe it's not. Ilya Shapiro, director of constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute, interrupted his trip to Legoland. So I'm interrupting uh, my day at Legoland to just say... To weigh in on the property of a billionaire donor who also gives to the Manhattan Institute. Here's what Shapiro said about Crow buying Clarence Thomas and his family nice things. Uh, there's not even an appearance of impropriety uh, unless Harlan Crow has some business before the court, which no one has alleged, not even in ProPublica's big, breathless, nothing burger of a report. The Manhattan Institute's 15-member board includes Kathy Crow, Harlan's wife, by the way. And while I believe the Legoland recording, the famous Legoland tapes, happened before the revelations about Crow's purchase of Thomas's mother's house, I am sure that the constitutionality of the matter doesn't change at all, which is, eh, it's probably constitutional and within the rules. But I do wonder what Shapiro would say about that appearance of impropriety question, because I am just one guy. I do my own apprehending out here in the world. And to me, the appearance is not good. It is not a good appearance. It does not appear to be a good thing to have a billionaire buying houses and doing upgrades for a Supreme Court justice's mother, i.e. for a Supreme Court justice. Even if there is no case before SCOTUS listing Harlan Crow as one of the litigants, you can't just give someone's mom tens of thousands of dollars in home improvement except for the fact that you can. You certainly can under the rules. So what there needs to be is some version of outcry over the lack of rules and the appearance of the conflict of interest, which there probably won't be if the issue doesn't appear in the forum that our political culture is quite imperfectly dedicated to defining what issues in general to pursue. It appears to me to conflict with my interest as a citizen that we have a Supreme Court that's more or less on the up and up. I will take a SCOTUS, I won't love it, but I'll take a SCOTUS that makes rules I disagree with so long as they follow the rules and not what seems to be the disturbing pattern here, operate in a world ungoverned by rules while defining for the rest of us what rules need to govern our behavior. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pasquez is director of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening. And to watch. The mood is tense. I have been on some serious, serious reports, but nothing quite like this. I, 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 uh, ching... King is inside right now. I tried to get an interview with him, but they said, nope, you can't do that. He's a live bear. He will literally rip your face off. Hey, you're making me look stupid. Get out here! 
panda jerk! <laughs>